Well, good afternoon, uh, everyone, and uh, good morning to our, our friends in the, in the US. Very warm welcome to our uh, call on lifting the COVID uh, lockdown, and thanks very much for, uh, for joining us today. So um, as governments start to ease the lockdown uh, restrictions, many businesses are developing plans that would allow employees to quickly return to work. Uh, a key part of those plans uh, may be the screening and diagnostic testing of workers in order to determine whether and indeed how they should be allowed back and importantly to inform workplace uh, protections. Uh, somewhat unhelpfully, governments across Europe have um, differing approaches uh, to testing and indeed self-testing, uh, whether it's permitted outside of the healthcare system and indeed how it's actually done. Uh, there also remains very much a mixed picture on uh, government's policies across Europe and indeed in the US on the use of certain types of testing kit and how reliable the test results um, uh, actually are. And as you'll uh, certainly appreciate, the deployment of screening uh, and or diagnostic uh, tests for employees raises a wide range of legal uh, questions that cut across multiple uh, different regulatory uh, areas. And very much with that in mind, uh, we thought it was timely to uh, host today's uh, session. Um, we have uh, somewhat unusually a very, very broad um, set of panellists. We've got a dozen or so uh, panellists. Uh, in the interest of time, I am not going to introduce everybody by full name and title. You should have received details of everybody who will be speaking today from the ANO team, but it's a cross-section of our regulatory uh, public law and employment teams, uh, as well as data uh, privacy. So uh, hopefully giving you a kind of full spectrum of the, uh, of the issues. Thanks very much uh, for those of you who submitted written questions. We are not going to have a live Q&A session at the end, but what we've got is a number of um, uh, written questions that have come in. We will attempt to address uh, most, if not all of those, as we go through the session. But we're going to run this for about uh, a panel discussion for about 60 minutes, and then we're going to leave um, approximately 10 to 15 minutes at the end of the session uh, to deal with uh, specific uh, questions. Now, we've got um, panelists from a variety of European jurisdictions and the US, so we are going to attempt uh, to cover a broadest, the broadest spectrum of uh, of jurisdictions, as you'll appreciate, this is very much jurisdiction and indeed state uh, specific in the, in the US. Uh, so we will do our best to cover that, that spectrum. Uh, we're also recording the call. So um, for those that wish to listen back and indeed pass the recording on to their team members, that's going to come out in the next day or so. Uh, so please do, uh, do look out uh, for that. So with all that in mind, um, if I could turn um, for the first question to Evelyn, uh, please, one of our uh, regulatory specialists. And Evelyn, um, before we get into the um, country specifics, um, could you just talk us through a bit of the, the types of screening and diagnostic tests that have been talked about and are potentially uh, becoming available on the market, please? Sure, thanks, Matt. As you already uh, indicated properly, like we should make a high-level distinction between um, diagnostic tests and, and screening tests. Uh, diagnostic tests allow to test for the presence of the virus in people that are currently affected and to determine if they actually have uh, COVID-19. 
Well, on the other hand, screening tests uh, will be testing for antibodies, uh, can only be used at a later stage, usually to four to 10 days afterwards, uh, to know if, a, if, a, if a, um, a worker has actually developed antibodies and has had the, the virus and potentially developed an immune response against it. Um, from a pragmatic perspective, the distinction is often made between rapid tests and non-rapid automated tests. And if we look at the types of tests that have most commonly been used uh, in Europe and worldwide today, these are actually non-rapid automated tests. These are also called molecular tests. And the most commonly, type, uh, the most commonly used type is uh, polymerase chain reaction tests or the so-called PCR tests. Um, so these tests actually will be testing um, workers for the presence the genetic of the genetic material of the virus when they're actually infected uh, with the virus. But they do not allow to say if a worker has had the virus or developed an immune, uh, an immune response against that virus. Uh, such testing works on the basis of nasal or uh, throat swabs. Um, and is generally considered to be the most um, reliable type of testing. It's the testing that has been recommended by most of the health authorities and international bodies in this respect. But the disadvantage that they have is that they are not rapid, they're automated, so they need to be sent off to specialized laboratories, um, need to be analyzed by very uh, specialized personnel through the use of multiple reagents. So generally speaking, uh, such a test takes about uh, four hours, but if you need to send them off to laboratories that are further away, um, the results can often only be, be told after, let's say, a day or more, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there's a load of these tests that are currently e-marked in the EU and also available for use in, uh, in the United States. Um, when we then look at the other types of testing that has become more gradually available, it's the rapid testing. Um, and in particular, uh, the rapid diagnostic testing, uh, which is antigen testing, uh, has great potential to alleviate all the pressure on um, laboratories as they currently have uh, not enough capacity to test workers and the population for the presence of the virus. So the antigen testing also works on the basis of uh, nasal or, or throat swabs. Um, the advantage that they have is that they can be, uh, the results are becoming available in the matter of a couple of minutes. They can be compared in terms of use uh, by, for example, a pregnancy test uh, and can be used also by, by much less specialized personnel, often do not need to send off to, to laboratories. Um, these tests are gradually becoming available, but um, the, the majority of the tests is still PCR tests today. Actually, in the US, uh, the first antigen detection test was only cleared on the 8th of May. So that's definitely uh, towards the future to be regarded as a good alternative to PCR testing. However, today it is said that uh, PCR testing still remains the, the gold standard. And when you use uh, antigen detection tests, uh, today it's still recommended that they're followed up by uh, a PCR test afterwards. Then the second type of rapid tests is um, the indirect antibody detection test, often referred to as the serological test. Um, because that's a test based on the blood serum. Um, that's a test that allows for screening of the population and that can be used in, um, in workers, for example, to determine if they have had the virus and potentially developed an immune response uh, against it. But um, one should be mindful that that test can only be used uh, four days to 10 days after somebody has been infected and it will test for the antibodies that have become available. Also, we should be mindful that uh, it is not yet known whether having had uh, COVID-19 actually creates an immune response for the future um, against the virus. 
So that's that's a high level overview of the different types of, of testing um, that we have. Yeah. Um, so let me um, let me just turn to approvals then for the test kits. There's been a lot of discussion um, around Europe around whether um, particular kits have CE marking, whether they need CE marking, how businesses check uh, whether the CE marking is is legitimate or not. Um, can you just talk us through a, a little bit around the, the issues on that, please? Sure. So, so all these types of tests are considered uh, in vitro diagnostic uh, tests, so IVDs, um, and uh, they indeed, uh, to be placed on the market in Europe, need to have obtained the CE marking, um, which means that they have undergone a performance assessment by their manufacturer uh, to be placed on the market. Once they have the CE marking, that means they can freely circulate on the European market in all the countries. Um, that being said, there is a specific exception, especially for these types of uh, pandemics and, and public health crisis, where companies exceptionally can ask a deviation and an exception to their national government to place these tests on the market under a specific uh, derogation. Um, so it is a possibility if um, um, a manufacturer has obtained that exception that the test is not CE marked, but yet can be made available uh, on the European market. The most important part is that actually, um, if you're an employer and trying to use uh, any of these tests as well, to check indeed whether the test has been CE marked and if not, if that manufacturer has obtained that specific derogation, which would be rather exceptional these days. Um, but also very important is to look at what the CE mark actually covers, um, because the CE mark is only valid for the intended purpose of the test. And so it definitely needs to be verified. First of all, what we mentioned before is whether it's a test for diagnosis or for screening to use it for the appropriate purpose, but also by whom it can actually be performed. Because today we have testing that really needs to be performed by specialized teams in uh, medical laboratories. But also when you look at the more point of care, the rapid testing, which can be performed point of care or sometimes by the user uh, themselves, uh, by laypersons, you, you need to check what is mentioned in the instructions for use and for what type of use that test has been approved. Um, while it's very often uh, mentioned that a lot of self-tests uh, are becoming available, which can be used by uh, employees themselves, um, to date, actually very few of these self-tests are properly CE marked for the simple reason that um, the manufacturer has to go through a much longer and burdensome process, involve a notified body, and that's why we should be particularly mindful with self-tests, as, as most of the time, even if a test is marketed as such, the CE marking will and the instructions for use will actually tell you that it needs to be performed nevertheless by a healthcare professional. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for that. Let's look at this a little bit more broadly then. And if I could turn to uh, Gautier Van Tyne uh, in our Brussels office. Gautier, um, there's been a lot of discussion um, amongst member state governments, each slightly taking a different uh, position on this to some extent. What, what's the European Commission said, if anything, about the use of testing and the deployment of test kits? Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, maybe at the outset, as you may have guessed already, the, the Commission only has a limited role and cannot direct member states into accepting a certain number of things. In the beginning of uh, the pandemic, I think the Commission has been reasonably eager and quick to come with a number of guidelines. They have done so already in the early April stages, where indeed they issued guidance on a basic guidance on the IVD directive as if things fell out, and actually pointing out and confirming that the pandemic is indeed a reason for justifying 
that member states could individually, despite the absence of the CE mark, allow certain testing methods uh, on their country basis. And furthermore, the Commission has prepared a guidance on a roadmap uh, to uh, lifting the COVID-19 um, uh, containment measures. Important in that roadmap, again, it's a roadmap, so it's not a legal document, but it spells out what the Commission thinks is relevant and is necessary. Now, the document dates back to April 15th, so almost a month ago by now, and things are rapidly evolving, obviously. But it was interesting to see that in that document, the Commission spells out a number of accompanying measures that would allow a controlled returning to somewhat normal status, and have indeed spelled out as one of the main uh, accompanying measures the increasing of testing methodology and specifically for our uh, i think for our purpose it's important to see that they have really stressed the need to setting up adequate testing schemes uh, specifying which combination of tests could be used at what stage and prioritizing amongst others people who return to their workplace moreover and it also goes to a point that evelyn raised um, and it's a bit odd to see that here in that communication the role of self-testing kits is also mentioned although it is with a caveat that it has to be properly validated and reliability ensured, but it is indeed a way uh, to see a, a reduction on the stress and the pressure on healthcare systems. Now, that same day, April 15, the Commission has issued yet another guidance. That's a really a guidance that looks at uh, COVID-19 in vitro diagnostic tests and their performance. Um, without going into the detail, it just gives a very basic overview uh, of the regulatory context, types of tests, the purpose those tests have. One of the things that is important um, is indeed that despite the fact that the Commission had stated in the roadmap to returning to, let's call it normal, the importance potentially of self-test kits, is that in this guidance, the Commission is very critical um, of self-test kits. It refers to the legislation of a number of member states that actually uh, plainly forbid to have such tests and shows indeed that uh, there is a lot of criticism and a lot of caution uh, that is necessary in applying those. Um, and also really consider that basically tests should be made by uh, professionals and one cannot offer professional tests over internet or by pharmacies to laymen. But there is a bit of a, a slight contradiction between one and the other. But again, as I said, it's mostly trying to guide member states rather than imposing actual uh, pan-European measures. Yeah, and I think you, you you probably answered my my second question is is whether the, the commission has come out with a clear view on whether certain types of tests are preferred as opposed to to others. They they have not as such, um, yeah. although there is a, a working document that has been prepared by something which is called the Joint Research Centre, which is part of the European Commission. That is a working document that has tried, and again, it's a working document, so it's an evolution to assess the current performance of COVID-19 test methods and devices, and also has tried to spell out a number of performance criteria. Uh, they indeed, as Evelyn mentioned, they look at the number of CE mark tests that are currently available on the market, but also try to give some guidance on what should be in further tests, or in the case that one should retest because some of the criteria that were used for CE marking may have been different over time, given the rapid evolution um, of uh, the virus. And so they come up with a number of uh, performance criteria where it's about descriptive information, what type of test is, is the quality control, the safety measures, but also importantly with a number of analytical performance uh, criteria and clinical performance criteria. Again, it's merely guidance. This document from the JSR has also found a way into the recommendation of the Commission. 
But as you correctly indicate, it is not a hard law. It is indeed not very binding, but it gives some sort of guidance. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Gaita. So obviously, clients just need to be mindful of that as well as uh, national level uh, guidance and, and policy. Okay. So that, that's the kind of broad context. Let's dive into a little bit more detail then if we can. Uh, and I know there's been a number of questions um, come through through live on this. So I think we, we need to draw the distinction between um, screening and diagnostic testing uh, for these purposes. I think it's a very important distinction. And a lot of clients we're seeing are focusing on uh, temperature checks uh, as a way of initial um, screening. Uh, so what I'd like some of the panelists to talk about is uh, some of the considerations that employers need to be thinking about when looking at this type of screening. We're gonna talk about diagnostic testing issues in a minute. So here it's really, really around the kind of temperature checks and, uh, and what folks are seeing. And, and here we're gonna have a, we, we will have a run through a number of jurisdictions, but if I can start with um, Sarah Henshaws, uh, one of our employment uh, partners based in the UK to kick us off on some of the employment issues, uh, that would be great, Sarah. Thanks, Matt. I mean, certainly this is a question we're being asked again and again by clients who are considering temperature screening as part of the return to work plans, not just here in the UK, but more widely. Um, it's hard to think, isn't it, that just a few months ago, if someone were to suggest you had to be screened before you could enter the workplace, um, just how employees would react to it. And certainly pre-lockdown, we had clients coming to us asking us, you know, can we do this? And it was, it was regarded with a high degree of scepticism, both by employees and employers, actually, as to you know, how people would react from a privacy perspective, um, how intrusive it would be, how you'd actually go about doing it. And so we didn't really see clients embarking on this pre-lockdown. Um, but obviously, in the space of the last couple of months, with the heightened focus on health and safety in the workplace as a result of the pandemic, you're now seeing a lot more um, in clients um, focused on doing this. And actually, it's being regarded now with much more um, of a welcomed approach by employees, including by works councils and trade unions in those countries and those employers who have them. Um, obviously, it's got to be um, combined with privacy and data protection requirements, some of which are more stringent in other countries, as we'll come on to look at. Um, so it's very hard to create a one-size-fits-all level playing field across your operations. Um, but if we take the UK first of all, um, you do need employee consent to be able to screen employees um, or the requirement to be screened must be a reasonable instruction. Now, obviously, whether it's reasonable or not depends a lot on what the employee's role is and how robust the policy is that you're going to be implementing, how the screening will be done, who it will be done by, um, how confidentiality will be preserved and um, what alternatives you've considered. Um, and of course, you know, I think there's a real degree of herd mentality with this. People will be looking across their industry and seeing what others are doing um, and likely to be, uh, it's likely to be more receptive for the employees if you can see others doing it in your industry. Um, if you're looking though across Europe, um, the position is quite different depending on which country you're focusing on. Um, so in France, um, there is um, an advice not to do it, um, but actually no, no prohibition. Um, so again, there's a question over how effective the screening will be, and I think that's something we'll, we'll come on to look at more widely in terms of both screening and diagnostic testing. Um, if you are going to do it in France, the communication needs to be very clear about what you're doing, why you're doing it. And I think transparency of comms is something that you can carry across all of your operations. 
it must be proportionate, um, as you would expect, um, preserving the dignity and confidentiality of the employees. Um, and employees need to understand what the consequences will be if they refuse to give their agreement to it. And I think that's something employers will have to grapple with. I mean, what do you do if someone says, well, actually, I'm not going to be screened? Obviously, you don't have to let them into the workplace, but then if they can't work from home, um, do you then have them on some form of unpaid leave? And, and the risks that you then face with constructive dismissal cases, uh, and in some cases, autopathic unfair dismissal. Uh, so certainly something to watch out for. Um, looking into Luxembourg, um, employees can volunteer to be tested. Um, but I think my data protection colleagues would um, jump in here to say, well, actually, is it ever really true consent? Can it ever really be voluntary when you're talking in an employment context? Um, in Germany, again, it can be voluntary and um, subject to data protection issues on, on the consent and being freely given, um, unless the relevant authority allows the collection of information on the state of health of the entire workforce, which is relatively limited. Um, Czech Republic, um, fine to go ahead with the screening, providing it's proportionate, so similar again to what we're here in France. Um, Italy, uh, there was a protocol at the end of April, which said that personnel can be subjected to temperature monitoring. Um, so they're sort of looking at that in a, in a bit more of a permissive environment. Um, same with Spain, provided there's a legitimate basis upon which you would be guaranteeing the health and safety of your workforce, so complying with your underlying employment obligations to create a safe working environment. In Poland, it's not possible unless there's been some um, inspectorate um, requirement for you to do so from a health and safety perspective. Uh, in the Netherlands, it can be done, but only in very limited situations where you have doctors doing it um, and the data isn't being shared with the employer um, or the data isn't being processed by the employer. Um, and in Belgium, it's possible again, but again, subject to very strict data protection and privacy rights, um, which I know my colleagues will come on to look at. So as I said, it's, it's very hard to get a one-size-fits-all approach if you're trying to take this globally. Yeah, Sarah, thank you very much. That was an extremely uh, useful overview. Um, so I said it right at the beginning that, um, and Sarah has touched on this, there's a multiplicity of issues that uh, you'll need to be thinking about for this. Employment is a key and central issue, but there may be other regulatory uh, concerns and they certainly flare up in the context of diagnostic testing. So um, temperature checks and screening um, may be a slightly simpler uh, question at that level. But let, let's just touch, we're going to come on to data in a minute. So not, Nigel Parker will talk about that, that particular point. But I just want to see, are there any other um, re broader regulatory considerations that folk need to be thinking about before they start um, temperature screening and maybe Arthur from Paris. Uh, uh, Sarah's touched on kind of French policy. Is there anything over and above that that you, you would just flag to to clients? Yes, maybe maybe just a quick point on thermal cameras because we've had questions from clients. Thermal cameras obviously allow you to screen a lot of people at the same time. Uh, on, on thermal cameras we've had conflicting guidance from the French authorities, the French Data Protection Authority seems to consider that they are forbidden by nature, but the Ministry of Labour seems to consider that if you don't actually record any information when you use the thermal cameras, then it might be possible. Um, an interesting point, however, is that Sarah mentioned the right to refuse, and the question is if you use a thermal camera, obviously, 
how do you manage the right to refuse? And we've had clients suggesting, for example, having two queues at the entry of the building so that if you want to refuse, you'll use the other queue. So this is kind of the questions we're seeing right now about uh, inference about thermal cameras. Okay, great. Luca, in Italy, um, anything you would like to add to that? Oh, yes. Well, as uh, Sarah mentioned, in Italy, the unions of workers and the companies sent two protocols in March and April 2020. And uh, in these protocols, they have um, determined which initiative the employers may take at the company level uh, to protect the health and safety of, of employees. Among these uh, initiatives, there is temperature uh, checks. There are temperature checks. Uh, and in this case, they're partially derogating from Italian employment laws, which generally enable employers to carry out assessments on employees to monitor their health st status. This is important because <clears throat> uh, before entering to work, uh, employees may be tested by, by employers. And uh, if the temperature is higher than 37.5 uh, Celsius uh, degrees, uh, they cannot access the building and the employer needs to report to the uh, health, uh, health authorities this particular situation and the health authorities will take the proper measures. Uh, this should be compliant according to scholars and according to the authorities with uh, GDPR to the extent that the temperature of the employees will not be recorded or communicated to any other employee, say for the case in which a worker is found to have a temperature higher than the, 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 the threshold, um, then the tested employee shall be provided with a privacy policy uh, in which clearly uh, the employer indicates the legal basis of the treatment of, and the criteria used uh, to treat uh, this, uh, this data. Um, so basically, considering that such measure has been expressly allowed by, uh, as part of a national program agreed by all the public and private stakeholders in exceptional contingency, and with a view to reduce the spread of coronavirus, temperature testing and should be considered compliant with the, with the, with the Italian law. But of course, uh, a, the employers need to stick to the uh, uh, applicable legislation, especially uh, with regards to privacy and with regards to protocols uh, signed by the workers' union, unless they could face both civil or criminal, um, uh, you know, uh, or, or uh, criminal offences. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, there are lots of other countries we can touch on. I'm just keeping an eye on time. I, I do want to. Um, I do want to come back to Nigel on data, but, but Brian, from a US perspective, um, I'd be very interested to hear from you in, in terms of what, what you're seeing over there. Uh, yeah, thanks, Matt. In the US, there is clear guidance that temperature checking is permissible by employers. Uh, it's governed by the American with Disabilities Act, which says that any kind of test, medical test is uh, of employees, it needs to be job related and consistent with business necessity. But the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission put out guidance saying, given how bad the virus is in the US, that, that test has been met. And so there is clear guidance in the US that you can um, conduct temperature checks as a condition to entering the workplace. Okay, Brian, thank you for that. And Nigel, um, from a data perspective, we're gonna talk in a, in a few minutes uh, in a little bit more detail about some of the data and privacy considerations, but 
any specific points to bear in mind for temperature checks? Yeah, just a couple of points. I mean, it's been touched on already. A number of data protection authorities have come out and made the point that it is possible to carry out temperature checks without actually processing personal data. If you're just operating temperature screening at the entrance and not recording any of the results, then that doesn't involve processing personal data and so isn't caught by the relevant rules. But there is a degree of scepticism as to whether that really is workable in practice and whether it really is possible um, to implement an, an effective screening program without collecting data. I think it's fair to say that in general, the data protection authorities are pretty negative about the idea of temperature testing. I think it's got something to do with proportionality, perhaps some looking at temperature testing and thinking, is that really an effective measure? Is that really a proportionate measure? Uh, and perhaps thinking through the consequences, you know, what's the impact of the screening on the individual? If it means an employee being turned away from the premises, well, you know, that might lead to an inherently unfair impact on the individual if they've got a temperature, but they've not got COVID-19. Um, so I think temperature testing is clearly not as risky as other kinds of um, uh, testing, but but you know, there's a generally negative view about it, I think, among DPAs. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, we've, we're, we're getting a flurry of questions as we go through this live, and we're going to pick up as many of these as we possibly can. So do do bear with us. And, and one which I hope we'll come back to is around uh, what about temperature checks for um, for visitors uh, coming into buildings. So I'll let folk think about that. But let's let's switch focus a little bit then uh, into the more kind of diagnostic testing. Uh, piece. Um, Evelyn talked at the beginning about RDTs and PCR tests and so forth um, and, and so let's assume that uh, many employers and, and we know uh, many of them are thinking about organising these type of tests um, in the workplace and of course at possibly at third party locations as well. I'd like the panel just to, to discuss around whether you know is this permissible First of all, so there's a kind of entry level uh, question. Secondly, what issues need to be um, need to be considered? And again, there are clearly employment and data points here, and we will we'll, we'll come back to those in a minute. But maybe uh, Arthur uh, could kick us off on this from a French perspective. Much more diagnostic testing. What's what are the, what are the issues? The broader regulatory issues that folk need to be thinking about. Thanks, Matt. I'll just I'll say a few words about the authority's position in general, and then, of course, mention the, the regulatory issues that the companies consider. Uh, at present, it's quite clear that French authorities are against companies organizing testing campaigns for their employees. That actually applies to all types of, of tests, PCR, rapid test, serological. Uh, the, motives for such, the motives for such uh, position um, is not entirely clear. They're saying that it does not make sense from a public health perspective, that, that that you would need to test everybody every day. Another possible explanation, maybe less official, is that they are afraid of some competition between, let's call it private testing and public testing. But anyway, we do have a paradox in France right now uh, because some French companies, and actually large ones, have decided to start their own testing campaigns anyway. Um, basically, for example, one of them offers free testing to employees. It's a voluntary basis. The samples are analyzed in a private laboratory. And then the results are communicated to employees only, not to the employer. And there's actually um, a legal debate as to whether French companies which are currently doing testing are in breach of French law. Uh, to our knowledge, French authorities have not taken uh, clear legal steps to stop them, at least for now. 
And actually, we'll see in the next weeks and months if French uh, authorities change their position about testing by companies. But in any case, uh, there are many regulatory issues uh, that need to be considered, obviously, and I will uh, let my colleagues, uh, of course, uh, present their insights. But I'll just mention maybe two or three. Well, first of all, who should take the samples inside the company? Uh, does it have to be a trained uh, health official? Do you need a medical prescription to do that? Uh, for that last question, for example, in France, it's still very clear that you need a medical prescription. Um, for companies, we were expecting that maybe labor um, physicians or doctors could do it inside the company, but there's been a decree was published yesterday, which actually does not mention that possibility for labor physicians to do it. So there is still uncertainty. Another question would be, how do you access lab capacity? As I said earlier, uh, companies doing testing right now actually have contracted with private laboratories to do that for them, instead, for example, of trying to set up their own laboratory, which is probably very complicated. Um, one final uh, issue, regulatory issue that's interesting, uh, that's coming up right now is, how would you expect private companies doing testing, collaborating with French authorities in terms of contact tracing? Because that's something that is, of course, an issue for lifting the lockdown. And also, if you do testing, how do you collaborate with the national French system that's being set up to centralize all the uh, uh, test-related data that's collected on national territory? So as you can see, there are many uh, issues, and I, I will just stop there and, and, and leave okay. it for my colleagues to, um, to, to present the others. Oh, I think that's great. Thank you for that. Uh, let's, let's switch to the UK, um, and if I can um, ask Isabella just to make some observations from a UK perspective on this. Certainly. Um, so in England, at least from a purely regulatory perspective, it is possible um, for an employer to COVID-19 test its employees. But the key message is that it's going to be subject probably um, to regulatory scrutiny and oversight. Uh, we do know that this type of testing um, is happening or is proposed in the UK, um, but the government hasn't really said much about it. Um, you've got Ocado, you know, who recently bought 100,000 testing kits. Uh, recently, BDO said that it was going to test its office employees fortnightly. You've got BP, uh, we've got most recently um, the Premier League. But, but really, the, the precise arrangements um, these employers have in place to take these tests and, and how they've arrived at those arrangements isn't uh, necessarily clear, at least from, from media reports. And, and why that's um, important, or one of the key reasons why that's important, um, is because some testing activities are regulated by the Care Quality Commission in England. And a key one, um, a key regulated activity to think about the scope and applicability of um, is the removal of tissue cells or fluids from the body to discover the presence of a disease, such as COVID-19. And, and that's important because if you look at the preferred a method of testing in the UK, so using the, the swab sample PCR model that, that Evelyn mentioned earlier today. If an employer adopts that model and they use swabs to remove samples containing tissue cells or fluids from an employee for the purpose of COVID-19 diagnosis, then that could very well uh, fall within the scope of a CQC regulated activity that requires registration. And, and once registration is triggered, there's a whole suite of things that, that you need to think about. And one of the main things is that an employer will need to be able to demonstrate that they can comply with uh, fundamental standards, which are largely geared towards uh, providing a safe service to users. So it includes things like making sure you have 
um, sufficient numbers of personnel to carry out the testing who are appropriately trained, competent, skilled, etc. Making sure your premises are fit for purpose, making sure you have the appropriate governance and complaint mechanisms in place. Um, as always, there are, of course, exemptions um, to the registration requirement. And one key one to think about is an occupational health scheme that's organised through an employer where it's for the benefit of the employee only. Um, now, that's just one exemption. Others may apply. There's a whole range of them that are included in the regulations. Um, so, so clearly companies um, in England are, are going to need to consider the various testing scenarios to figure out what's possible um, in practice, what, you know, what best suits their business and their employees, including thinking about things like the requirements of CQC, uh, registration and the associated timing. And Bella, I think it's fair to say you were very specific, deliberately so there, about England. Of course, health, as folk may know, in the UK is a devolved matter, so there are variations. Yeah, and so different regulators for Scotland um, and, and Wales in particular, so we need to be a little bit mindful uh, of that. Okay, so um, let's let's turn to Spain. Alvaro, um, could you just comment briefly on the Spanish position on this? Oh, thank you, Matt, of course. Uh, well, I think there's two things to, to, con to consider. On the one hand, the general regulatory requirements for any testing uh, for COVID or any other testing with blood or with human samples, and that these these requirements imply the need to 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 do this test by qualified and duly trained professionals. I think this is in line with most most jurisdictions, and also to use a testing laboratory, which has to be duly authorized. Uh, in, in practice, this second requirement um, requires that the companies hire an already established laboratory and that's what we are seeing with our clients or the people we, with uh, whom we are getting into contact and also for Allah Nobody we are doing tests with an external laboratory which is already authorized. Um, the reason would be that you can of course obtain an authorization but it doesn't make sense uh, right now because it takes a month to get this authorization. Um, leaving aside these general obligations, it should be noted that during this crisis there have been several instructions given by the government which are a little bit, well, not very clear, put it in mild words. And this includes, for example, that uh, any test of, for COVID-19 should be uh, required by a prescription. Uh, there, there has to be a prescription, a medical prescription before doing testing. And this, for example, limits a lot um, what companies can do because this means that companies cannot just do a random um, test to their employees. In practice, I have to say that we have seen very relaxed uh, use of these regulations. And I myself, which I have no, uh, I did a, a test yesterday and I didn't have any symptoms. And anyway, the doctor signed for the prescription without any problem. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> You are the guinea pig. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm doing a lot of research for my, myself on this um, with my body, with my own body. <laughs> yeah, okay. And okay. also, we, we have seen from clients that actually the internal, the internal doctors of the companies are, the, are just prescribing to whatever employee, to, or if, for any employee, and they are signing with no problem at all. Um, Another restriction to consider, at the beginning of the crisis, there was a, a threat by the government to seize the, the tests. It was at the beginning when there was no test at all. Right now, we see that there's no problem at all to, to do tests in Spain. So we understand that even though this is still in force, in theory, um, 
the risk of seizure if let's say a company brings theft to Spain is very low. Um, finally, we have also seen uh, regulations uh, requiring, for example, if a company starts doing tests to their employees, to then submit this to the regional authorities so that the central government knows what's going on. We are not sure if this is working very well, but, uh, well, the, the regulations are there. Okay. And that would be for Spain. Okay, very much an evolving picture then. Uh, thank you, Alvaro. Uh, Marinas, what's the um, what's the news in um, in the Netherlands? What are you, what are you seeing there? And from a regulatory issue, what are the considerations? Um, thanks, Matt. Um, in general, for the Netherlands, um, it should be noted that the the Dutch government uh, policy on testing is mainly aimed at uh, the testing of risk groups, medical professions, and uh, for example, teachers. Uh, and the, the the reason for that is that uh, to put less pressure on the testing capacity. Um, and risk groups, by the way, are people with uh, with you know with a higher risk of severe um, uh, complication as a result of COVID-19, and that applies then to uh, to elder people, of course, or uh, adults with uh, yeah, what we call underlying uh, underlying conditions. Uh, these these people can be tested um, um, uh, very very easily, and the government has has also um, uh, promised that there will be sufficient test ca testing capacity as of the the first of June. So that's that's a general policy uh, in the Netherlands. Um, apart from the, uh, uh, we all already discussed the employment and privacy law issues. If we then go to the more um, more regulatory issues, um, uh, Yasari already mentioned it briefly for the Netherlands. Uh, for the Netherlands, it, it is in our view important that a doctor should carry out um, the testing. Um, from a regulatory point of view, in itself, testing is not an exclusive act for for doctors. Um, this is uh, 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 one comment there that is different. If the uh, uh, test involves a puncture in, into the body, then it is an exclusive act for for a doctor. But um, uh, more importantly, um, uh, yeah, in, in the Netherlands there is a, a public health act, uh, um, and on, under this act, a doctor is obliged then to report. A positive test result to the um, yeah to the municipal health service in, in Dutch it's the abbreviation for that is the, the GGT um, and yeah the whole system assumes that a doctor uh, will uh, will will report that to the uh, to the municipal health service immediately um, and yeah it, it, in our view if if an uh, if an employer starts to test uh, there may be uh, there may be enforcement issues around there. Uh, if an uh, employer uh, finds out that one of one of his employees uh, has a positive test, so therefore, um, yeah, a doctor is, is strongly recommended, and doctor is also, uh, in our view, uh, best place to deal with, you know, with the whole collection techniques, and uh, yeah, also with the testing and yeah, the the the, um, uh, the testing materials itself. So that is that is, in our view, the most important consideration for for the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, Marinus, thank you very much for that. So Udo, in Germany, we've obviously been reading uh, over the last couple of weeks about the loosening of the lockdown in um, in Germany. Are, are you are you seeing uh, many employers uh, go for more diagnostic testing to get people back to work? And what are the um, what are the headline regulatory considerations for that? Yes, indeed, um, the fact that the lockdown um, gets lifted triggers, of course the need for more testing uh, what we read in the in the newspapers and what we experience in our practice is 
that uh, currently employees are not yet that keen to carry out testing on site. Um, the, the headlines, if you want to, are rather around testing at schools uh, and also testing in locations like airports um, to ensure safe travel. Um, however, this, um, these tests are often carried out by external service providers who are specialized in these kinds of tests. And usually this doesn't then not trigger any intervention from the authorities because these service providers are, seem to be reliable and seem to comply with, with the state-of-the-art requirements on that. However, when employer, em, employers want to do on-site testings in their own premises, um, there's a lot of um, discussion around, in particular, the question whether you need a doctor on-site, uh, what is the qualification of the assisting personnel that you use, must this be trained or, or not, um, and you are also discussing the requirements and the standard, standards of the rooms, of the premises, of the location where testing is carried out. Um, and finally, uh, there, there, is, there is some debate around the question whether, whether such um, testing requires a permit, a worst case scenario. Um, the answers to all these questions cannot be straightforward uh, due to the variety of tests that we see. Uh, I think there, there are around 270 tests available. Uh, each of them is working slightly different, and each of them may, of course, uh, have a different legal impact. Um, and it's even a bit more complex in Germany because the, the, there is not one federal authority which is competent to answer the questions. Uh, basically, there are local or regional authorities uh, which um, are competent to to deal with, with these questions. And therefore, of course, um, as Germany is a quite large country with a lot of municipalities uh, and regional um, authorities, of course, the answers to each of these questions may be quite different. So um, you have to be careful um, and you always should um, check uh, also in the end with, with your local and regional authorities. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Ude. Just uh, then briefly on the, on this topic, um, Kent, can you just uh, talk a little bit about the, the, what you're seeing in the US on this and what some of the, the issues are? Sure. Uh, Donald Trump announced this morning that the pandemic's over, so there's no testing necessary. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently that's not correct. So, so look, in the US, you can't test. There are some specific guidance from the EEOC, the, uh, which, which Brian Jeb mentioned earlier, uh, from the FDA, from the, the Center for Disease Control, um, and there's some other federal guidance, uh, all of which permits, permits testing um, and imposes some obligations in terms of how you go about it. And it's changing frequently, as, as, as you may well have seen, while there is evolving approaches in, in, the, uh, in Europe and in the other jurisdictions that are being represented on this call, in the US, it's all very fraught and politicized. And so we have some frequent changing and some inconsistent requirements being imposed, leaving employers in a very difficult spot. And the important thing to recognize in the US, and this may seem obvious, but it really is a key issue here, is that there is a lot of litigation already around these issues. 
So there's more than a thousand federal and state cases, some of which are class action suits against all manner of employees. And so it's, it's critical that employers get this right. Uh, so look, you can test. Um, it, it can be required in certain cases, and Brian Jeb will talk about that later on, I think. Um, but when you do it, you need to get consent. You need to make sure the test is accurate. You need to make sure that uh, you understand what you're going to do with the results. There's issues in the U.S. putting aside privacy on discrimination claims, on the rights of employees to refuse. Uh, on what you do with the data, on what you do to the workplace based on your results. And, and frankly, companies are struggling with this right now. There have been a number of widely reported cases against uh, the beef and pork producers, against major factories, against the cruise lines on how they're handling this, their failure to test. In fact, you can get sued in the U.S. both for failing to test and for testing or for testing and disclosing the results, or identifying someone who's tested positive, or failing to identify someone who's tested positive. So, you know, the, the key thing in the U.S., to the extent any of the listeners here have operations in the U.S. or own entities in the U.S. or are looking to buy entities in the U.S., um, is to make sure that your team on, on the ground is, is rapidly um, evaluating the changing requirements. Um, and documenting everything so that you have uh, the right story to tell if and when the inevitable uh, litigation uh, should follow. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Ken. All right, so so there's some of the, 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 the regulatory um, issues and clearly um, to make life kind of harder for clients, it's very much a kind of patchwork based on a national level as we've heard on a, on a, on a regional level. What about uh, some of the employment-related uh, issues, uh, Sarah? Could you just talk to us a little bit about uh, about those, please? Yeah, I mean, they're very similar to the issues that people have already flagged, actually, Matt, through the regulatory um, perspective and the data and privacy perspective. Um, obviously, undertaking testing of employees needs to be proportionate. Um, otherwise, you're going to be in breach of your employment obligations um, to employees, irrespective of what your privacy um, obligations are, your regulatory obligations. Um, so how you go about doing it, who it is that actually does the testing for you, what you do with the data that you collect, um, and how transparent you are with employees about what you're going to do with the information you get and how you're going to use it will all be important. So you're balancing, on the one hand, the need to provide a safe working environment, with going about that in a way that doesn't erode um, trust and confidence essentially between the employer and the employee. Um, the UK uh, return to work guidance, which came out on Monday night, requires employees to do a risk assessment from a health and safety perspective and to consult with employees in relation to um, that risk assessment and the steps the employer is going to take about bringing people back to work, which obviously um, includes for many going through some form of screening or medical testing process. And it also requires employees to publish on their websites um, where they've got 50 or more employees, the outcome of that risk assessment. Um, so that obviously holds them to be much more accountable in a much more visible way by their workforce and of course by collective bodies who they might recognize within the workforce. And um, so there's a number of things which run very much parallel to the data privacy considerations. Sarah, thanks very much uh, for, for that. So um, on that, so on that note, Nigel, um, we've touched on a number of these, but uh, could we just elaborate in a little bit more detail? Then I know some questions coming in on this uh, as we uh, as as we're live. 
um, on, on those data and privacy questions is certainly alongside the employment area uh, space where we're seeing lots and lots of questions about uh, what you do with the data and, 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 and how you process it. So you just talk to us a little bit about that, please. Sure. Uh, I think it's a really good point. Look, it's really difficult to make decisions about what is and isn't possible in isolation and the data protection and employment aspects of this are really, really bound together. Um, the, the trickiest issue from a data protection perspective is establishing a legal basis, a lawful basis for carrying out the testing. And the, the great challenge with that at the moment is that there really isn't consistent government guidance or requirements across different countries to carry out testing in the workplace. And in the absence of that, and, and you know, that may well come, but in the absence of that, that leaves the company having to balance different interests. It's having to balance its obligations to look after the workforce, the health and safety of employees and visitors possibly, but also balancing that against the privacy rights of their employees. And there are certainly legal basis that we can look to in the EU to, to rely on and, and guidance is starting to come out that confirms that. But, but there's no black and white answer and whether or not testing does have a legal basis will depend a lot on um, what exactly it involves, how it's carried out, what the results are used for and, and so on and so on. Um, there's differing views among the data protection authorities and it's going to take a little while for them to align and hopefully reach a more of a consensus. And we've seen limited sort of leadership so far uh, from the EDPB in Europe in terms of setting, setting out a common position that everyone can follow. Um, if you can get over this hurdle of establishing a legal basis, getting comfortable that it, it, it may be required, you may be able to bolster your position somewhat by getting independent scientific advice. In the absence of government guidance, perhaps go out and get independent medical opinions that justify this as a proportionate measure, something that can be justified being implemented. Um, also important to go through all the normal steps that we, you would go through whenever undertaking a new data processing activity. So that will usually involve carrying out some form of impact assessment, a data protection impact assessment. And when doing that, it's really important to think about the different stages of data processing that go on. There's data processing that goes on when the test is carried out, when the test results are reported, but then separately when the test results are then acted upon. Um, what does the company do with the test results? Does it communicate it to other members of the workforce? Does it share the information with health authorities? Um, what does it do with the information? What's the, the implication? It's important also as part of the data protection impact assessment to think about the data protection principles, about necessity and proportionality, thinking about questions, uh, are the tests actually reliable? And, and here, you know, the different forms of testing there's clearly different answers to that question that sim tests are clearly much more reliable than others and so can, are easier to justify on proportionality grounds. You've got to think about transparency and fairness. Are you communicating to employees what, what the purpose of the testing is, what the consequences will be of them taking the test, not taking the test, passing the test, failing the test? Data minimization, what data is collected, what's recorded? Um, do you just record whether someone's tested positive or not, or whether they've taken the test or not? Or are you collecting more information about medical history and so on and so on? Data rules, protection rules say you should collect the minimum necessary. 
purpose limitation. What are you using the data for? Are you using it to decide whether someone will be allowed to come to work or whether you need to put in place special measures to, to limit risk? Storage limitation. How long are you keeping the data for? Are you keeping it only um, until you have the um, test result and then disposing of samples or anything else that's been collected? How long are you retaining that? If, if, if someone tests positive, are they entitled to a retest? How often are you going to repeat the tests? How often are you going to update that information? Will you allow individuals to update their own information if they go to a third party and get their own test result that contradicts the one that, that you've obtained within the company? How are you going to keep this information secure? How are you going to make sure that it's only used for the purposes for which it's collected and for which it's intended? got to think about implementing, following that impact assessment, various controls, safeguards to make sure you're limiting risks to individuals that might be involved in, in carrying out testing. Just a couple of final messages. I think really important with the data protection analysis to uh, keep this under regular review. What we're seeing with clients is that the fact pattern is often evolving. Their plans are constantly evolving with the science and with um, changes in policy as to what exactly they're, they're, they're planning to do. Also important to, in parallel to look at the guidance coming out of governments and data protection authorities, because that is changing on a daily basis, sometimes in a, in a, in a helpful way, sometimes unhelpful. Sometimes, you know, changes are made to the guidance on the website and they're not even announced that they're being made. So you've got to look really carefully. Um, and it's really important to consider differences between jurisdictions because we're seeing, you know, different approaches still um, emerging across different countries. Okay, thank you, Nigel. Um, that, that, that's very, um, very, very helpful. Um, so just, just keeping an eye on time uh, before we go into some of the questions that have been raised. Uh, I know one one topic that uh, lots of clients are are asking is, um, you know, can we make testing of um, of uh, employees and indeed, as has been raised on the call, of visitors as well. I guess is the other angle to that. But can we make it mandatory? Um, and um, Brian, would you be able to just comment on that from a U.S. perspective, first of all? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, in the US, um, there is clear guidance that if um, you can test an employee, whether they have the virus, diagnostic testing as a condition to entering the workplace. So the, the, the EEOC has put out clear guidance that it says, you know, we think this testing is, is consistent with um, you know, job-related purposes and business necessity. So that's the, that's the clear answer. Now, on some of the other issues we've, we've talked about, in terms of how the test should be conducted, the EOC have said that employers should follow FDA guidance. So similar to, to Nigel's point, employers should be, should be keeping up to date about what the FDA says in terms of uh, how to conduct the tests and how to do it safely. Um, while we don't have GDPR, we don't have nearly as strict privacy legislation in the US as you do in Europe, uh, employers should be thinking about the HIPAA privacy rule because this is medical information, which is some of the most sensitive information. So even the US, there are restrictions on, on that. And so employers should be uh, looking to the HIPAA privacy rule. But the last issue, though, in the US is, is about antibody testing, because, you know, certainly in New York City, where I live, where, where the, you know, there's been such high levels of the virus, we are able to get antibody testing uh, as we want. It's very easy to get antibody testing. So then the question is, can employers to do, can employers do that as a condition to entering the workplace? Uh, the EEOC has not issued guidance supporting that, 
and currently says, given the status of antibody testing, uh, given we don't know how accurate it is, there's lots of tests around around it. There's um, they've exercised caution in doing that. Okay, Brian, thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, and Arthur, just finally, um, how does that contrast with the EU position? Any any observations to make on that? Yeah, um, the answer uh, in the EU is generally you cannot make it mandatory for employees, but as always in the EU, of course, the picture is very mixed. I would say there are broadly three categories of countries. The first one is uh, countries where mandatory testing clearly is not possible. That should include, for example, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and obviously the reason for that is the right to privacy. It's not seen as a proportionate measure, at least for now. The second category of countries is where mandatory testing seems to be possible. We have the example of, for example, of Poland. Uh, we have the Czech Republic. Uh, we have uh, Slovakia. And the reason here is either uh, the obligation to protect your employees, and it's seen as, a, as reason enough to do testing, mandatory testing, or the exception, for example, in case of an epidemic, which gives legal ground to do mandatory testing. The final category is uh, uh, countries where it should be more of a case-by-case -case analysis for actually for each company, and that includes, uh, for example, uh, Sweden, where the employer is required to actually demonstrate that the measures uh, is proportionate. So it's, it's a mixed picture. Yeah, okay, okay, great. Right, uh, so thanks very much to the, uh, the panelists. Um, we've got about 13 or 14 minutes um, uh, left for general Q&A. And as I said at the beginning, a number of you have, have put in some written questions and we've been getting questions as we go through. So if I can just go through um, through those. And the I think, Ken, you've, you've, you've largely dealt with the first uh, question around what are we seeing around testing programs and litigation risk. That, that question came through. So I'll, we can kind of skip through uh, that. But Sarah, I think this is probably one for you on the employment side. So the question is what um employee rights will there be if the employee needs or wants to stay at home and self um uh, isolate after the um the lockdown period so this could be they're concerned that there's somebody else at work has got the virus or a family member may have got the virus and they and they positively choose to to stay at home despite encouragement uh, or or more uh, positive position from the um from the uh, employer uh, any any thoughts on that sure and um, well a lot of that will depend on what country the employee is based in and what local governments are saying about the return to work so if we just take the uk as the example um obviously the uk government's return to work scheme at the moment is stay at home um, unless you cannot do your job at work um, so on that basis if people have been working adequately from home they should be able to continue to do so but if we sort of fast forward to the point when actually it becomes more common to return back to the workplace and maybe further um, restrictions are lifted, there will inevitably be people for various different reasons who don't feel safe going back to work. It might not be because of the workplace itself, it may be because of use of public transport to get themselves to and from work, um, particularly you know, those who are using trains, undergrounds, buses, etc. Um, it may also be because they have vulnerable um, people at home and they're worried about bringing um, the virus back with them to those who are vulnerable at home. Um, in the UK, we have provisions where employees who have a genuine and reasonable belief 
uh, in their safety and welfare at the, at the workplace being breached um, if they are dismissed for exercising the rights not to um, work in that scenario and um, will be able to claim to be automatically unfairly dismissed. Um, so certainly it's not easy for an employer to simply say, well, if you're not coming back to work, um, we're going to dismiss you. You're going to have to have consultation with that employee as to their personal circumstances. What is it that's making them fearful about coming back to work? What can the employer do to relieve that fear, remove some of that anxiety? Um, and what sort of adjustments can be made? And only at the point where the employer has done all that is reasonably required of it. Um, will the employer be able to move to a point of saying, well, actually, we require you to be back in work. Your job isn't one that can be done permanently or long term from home. Um, and actually, your requests of us are not reasonable ones that they would be able to move forward to a more um, lawful basis of termination. Yeah. OK, thank you. Um, I think this this question's uh, one for Evelyn, uh, if I may, around CE marking. Um, so the, the question is, what, what measures can be taken to verify the validity um, of certain CE mark rapid antibody uh, test kits? A any kind of practical advice around that, Evelyn? Sure. So yes, unfortunately, there is no EU-wide database uh, where you can just search whether a test uh, or a test kit has been CE marked. Um, there are certain national databases for, for uh, CE marked IVDs in general that you could check on a national basis. But more importantly, a lot of health authorities nationally have currently published uh, on their website or on specific uh, instruments uh, a list of CE marked tests for COVID-19 and also specifically recommended certain tests. Uh, some governments uh, will list the CE marked tests but say that certain uh, tests of, of these they don't recommend for use uh, currently. Um, another helpful resource uh, where you get a more global picture um, is the website of the non-governmental organization FIND, um, which is uh, finddx.org. That's a non-governmental organization that works together with the European Commission and the European Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, and which attempts to give a really global picture of what types of tests have been CE marked um, and also approved for use in the US or in China, and then link to the website of the manufacturer of these tests. But, but the only um, real, really solid way uh, to verify if, if a test is valid for the purpose that you want to use it is actually check with the manufacturer um, itself on the website, for example, and ask the instructions for use. The CE mark should be mentioned normally on the packaging, on the instructions for use, but more specifically, as mentioned before, uh, you should check in the instructions for use uh, what the test exactly is CE marked for, for what use, by whom, uh, for self-testing or by uh, laboratories or by healthcare professionals. And maybe one particular point uh, of, of caution here as well, because the question specifically referred to kits. Um, if you're using a kit that has been uh, composed as such and CE marked in uh, in its global uh, in its global form as a kit, um, that's different from when you would try to actually compose these kits yourself by, for example, taking uh, a swabbing uh, swabbing uh, methods as well as a tube, etc. Then you will have to check if these particular components are CE marked for their proper purpose and. And be careful that you're not making a new kit, uh, which would be have to be CE marked separately. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, we, you, you, you may remember the topic of Brexit, although it feels quite a long time ago. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, it's still it's still here. Uh, this is a question I think for Bella, uh, if I can. So, 
Um, so the question is this, so let, let's assume the transition period ends as currently envisaged on the 31st December this year. Um, but for a UK business importing test kits from the EU27 as of the 1st of January uh, 2021, so we're the, the cliff edge moment, let's assume, has happened, can those importers rely on the European CE mark um, and, and as a as verification of the product, or will they need to get it separately marked? Any any comments on that one? Yeah, sure. It, it's a good question and um, not one that has particularly straightforward answer, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, so, so currently, um, that is until the end of the transition period, so until the end of the year, if it expires then, um, the EU rules will continue to apply in the UK, so it's business as usual. Um, in terms of what happens after that, um, it's much less clear. So a lot of it's um, going to depend on whether a deal can be reached between the EU and the UK, and if so, what that might look like. If we look at um, the UK government's approach to negotiations in the document that they've released, um, it's clear it wants a free trade, grill, free trade deal with the EU, um, which is supplemented by a range of protocols that deal with technical barriers to trade. And one of those protocols is proposed to deal with um, mutual recognition of conformity assessments um, across all sectors. And then if we look at the EU's own, own negotiating document, um, it also includes some commentary and conformity assessments that actually doesn't go as far as the UK's um, commentary. So it could be that these things are on, on the table to be discussed between the parties. Um, when no agreement is reached, so in a no deal scenario, um, the MHRA released some guidance last year, it was last updated I think in October, um, which said that in a no deal scenario and for a time limited period, um, the UK would continue to recognise the CE mark, it would continue to allow CE marked devices to be placed on the UK market. But that guidance was withdrawn um, earlier this year in February, but we might assume that something similar could be um, reissued if it becomes clearer later on in the year if a deal is not going to be reached. Um, it's worth noting too that the EU has said that the UK would be regarded as a third country for the purposes of, of medical devices legislation. But in any event, um, for a UK person who's you know importing um, a coronavirus testing kit from Europe, depending on you know when those kits are imp imported, depending on the nature of the kit, um, there will be a range of other things that need to be um, considered. So they'll need to think about things like product liability implications, um, what additional obligations apply to importers, which Evelyn um, touched on at the beginning of this session, um, whether a UK responsible person would need to be involved, what um, mirror registration requirements there are in the UK. So it's it's not just about CE marking, that, that won't be the whole picture. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, very good. Uh, so we've got a we've got a question around Dutch uh, guidelines. Marinus, if you'd be able to help on this one. Uh, I think you've kind of touched on this, but let, let's just make sure we dealt with it fully. Uh, so the question is, would it be possible to have employees that, and third parties conduct a self-temperature check on company premises in, in a private room uh, where it's 100% voluntary and the company is not recording or registering the, um, the uh, outcome? And this could be where, for example, an employee has noticed a high temperature um going through the scanner or applying the scanner um and so forth so any 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 thoughts on that 
Yeah, um, yeah. This this question most likely refers to the position of the the Dutch uh, um, Data Protection Authority, the uh, the AP. Um, uh, the, the, the the DPA the, did follow a very strict interpretation of the of the uh, the privacy uh, rules and was used, was initially of the opinion that employers are not allowed to process any medical data, which is uh, which is a common understanding, of course. Uh, but last week um, uh, we noticed that the DPA relaxed uh, slightly a bit its position uh, with respect to the with respect to temperature checks only. Um, and um, the, the, the DPA stated that, um, that the temperature screening would not be regulated under the uh, GDPR uh, if, if the temperature was not uh, registered or will not be registered and will not be shared. Uh, so, for example, if you have a, have a scanner which gives a, a green light and, and, a, um, uh, and a red light if the temperature is above a certain, certain level, what the um, the 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 privacy the, the AP or the DPA also stated that, uh, for example, if there is a queue uh, in um, in in the lobby of a of a, of a of a of a building, and everyone can see, of course, that um, that in the queue can see a, a green light or or a red light, then still um, still the human rights can be uh, can be can be breached. Um, so uh, for, uh, that can be that can be uh, helped, of course, uh, and and the the person who asked the question has has, has already thought about it uh, very well. That can be um, uh, overcome this this issue if it's if it's dealt with in the, in a private room. So um, yeah, if you follow the the the, the, the reasoning of the, the DPA, that that will be then in line with with privacy issues. Okay, of course, the normal uh, if, if then. The scanner gives gives a red light, then the normal uh, the normal home uh, sick sick uh, procedure can be uh, stepped in. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I think we've got time for one more one more question, and I think this one is for Nigel and Sarah. Um, it's quite broad ranging, so maybe Nigel, you start off on this if you, if you would be so kind. Uh, what about the question is what about employee monitoring during home office, such as tracking online activity, logging in, logging off records, platform usage, um, uh, et cetera, as, as I assume part of an overall, um, you know, tracking and, and tracing uh, system. Um, Nigel, any uh, observations on the on the privacy and data side? I think the short answer to that is that's something I'd expect businesses to have been doing anyway pre-COVID. Um, most businesses monitor their networks to secure their networks from external threats, um, and they'll have done it. Um, in relation to home working previously, the, the risk profile changes so the, the importance of monitoring to protect against the risk perhaps uh, increases uh, with home working. But, um, but, but really most companies already have implemented some form of monitoring. It's not something that's easy to implement because some countries are quite um, against monitoring. Data protection authorities are quite restrictive in, in allowing it. Um, so a lot of companies will implement monitoring in some countries but not others um, due to those concerns and so you know the, I think key message there don't rush into implementing monitoring just because of the unique sort of risk cyber increased cyber risk of COVID because there are lots of um, obstacles to overcome to do that in a compliant way. Okay great Sarah just very briefly any any immediate points from your perspective on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with Nigel. I think that um, a lot of employers have taken this period as an opportunity to reflect on their working from home policies um, because most of them were put in place to provide for people doing ad hoc days from home rather than it being um, a long term, um, a five day a week kind of um, setup. That has required them to sort of look back and say, well, actually, are we doing all that we can be doing to support employees, but also to protect the business as well? Um, and kind of really unique situations have been coming up through this remote working period, such as people who are in um, job shares, uh, sorry, in flat shares, house shares, um, who are sort of sitting in one communal space doing calls with their friends around them, um, having you know, confidential discussions or leaving their laptops open while they go and get a cup of coffee um, and having you know, confidential information available on the laptop. So there's lots of things for employers to think about how they communicate with staff, what their expectations are around. Um, not just monitoring of them but how the staff themselves are actually using the data that they've got and keeping that safe okay great all right well we i think have um have come to the end of our uh, our allotted time and i'd like to thank the uh the panelists today for joining us we we've covered uh a very very broad set of topics across multiple jurisdictions uh so in a, in a space of an hour and 15 minutes you can only do so much uh, justice to those. Uh, I very much appreciate that for many of you uh, with a footprint uh, across Europe and indeed globally in the US, um, these are immensely challenging uh, times as, as you try and kind of plot a consistent uh, system and way through this. Um, as you have heard, I think today, uh, it's very much looking at it on a country by country basis and trying to draw principles from that. Uh, but consistency, as best you can achieve it is um, is key. I mean, I think also amongst the clients we've been working with, uh, those that are looking at this in the most holistic way, I think are are, are the ones getting it um, are getting it right. You, you've heard many of the issues we've talked about, all of which are substantive uh, legal topics in and of themselves. But you've got to take into account all of those uh, areas and come to a coherent kind of policy and plan that's legally robust uh, in, in many different ways. And that we fully appreciate is a, uh, is a, is a challenge. Um, I can apologize if we have not answered your question. I mean, by all means, follow up with any of the panelists and with us um, uh, after, after today. I've seen lots of questions coming in, which is great, some very interesting ones uh, coming through. So uh, we'd be very happy to talk uh, offline with you uh, about uh, any of those. Uh, so I think that just leaves me again to thank the panellists uh, and to you. Thank you very much for joining. Stay safe and stay uh, well and uh, enjoy the, uh, the rest of your day. Thanks very much.